So how many of you are familiar with the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? How many of you, that is your, one of your favorite Christmas movies? How many of you have watched it this year already? Any, nobody's watched it this year? Well, your, your assignment is this afternoon after you wake up from your nap, uh, watch It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, when the movie ends, um, poor George has had a very difficult day, hasn't he? Um, his day is kind of a microcosm maybe of our year, of our 2020. And he had a very difficult day, and his life had not turned out how he planned. He planned to travel the world. Um, he planned to build great buildings, make a lot of money, and he was still stuck in Bedford Falls um, with a, a house that was rickety. And to make matters worse, he had come up short on some money. He was uh, alleged that he misappropriated funds and there was a warrant out for his arrest. So, so we're not going to critique the theology of it's a wonderful life. But God sends an angel down, a second class angel, to show George what a wonderful life he has and what a rich man he really is because of the friends that he has. And his brother uh, toasts to him, George Bailey, the richest man in town. And this morning I want to ask you, you've heard George's story, ask you this morning what your story is. Specifically, what's your story this year? What has this year been like for you? And if you're, you're watching um, online or you're in our extension service, I want to welcome you too. And, and before, before I, I go any further, I want to let you know, Pastor Lemming will be back next week. Uh, so if you're new here, this is your first time, you definitely want to come back and hear our pastor. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. And I apologize that today you're having bologna sandwiches. Next week, you'll be back in primary we'll be back on the menu. Um, but thank you for joining us. But I want to ask you, how's your 2020 been? Um, just like George had challenges, um, he lost sight of what was important in life. I, I feel that some of the challenges in some ways have reminded us of what's important in life, but in other ways ha have, have caused us a lot of anxiety and a lot of difficulty. Um, so what I want to do is look in Galatians chapter 4 today. And I want to remind you and I need to remind myself also of the riches that we have in Jesus as we go into this Christmas series. And, 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 and I hope that you'll leave knowing what I know, and this is what I know, that because Jesus came at Christmas, I'm the richest man in town, just like George Bailey. And as you're turning to Galatians to kind of set up what was going on, um, this is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of, uh, of God the Apostle Paul was someone who had persecuted and killed Christians. Jesus appeared to him, and he became a Christian, and he started sharing the gospel, planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. And, and Paul would, would, would share the gospel with people. They would get saved. They'd form a church. And Paul left a trail of churches in his path. And as Paul was leaving those trails of churches in his path, a problem arose. There were people that came out of Jerusalem. They were known as the Judaizers. What, what, a, what a name, right? The Judaizers. And they were following behind Paul, trying to get the people of those churches not to just believe in Jesus, but to follow the Jewish or the Mosaic law in addition to that. And their line of reasoning was Jesus was Jewish. So since Jesus was Jewish, you, even though you're not Jewish, you need to follow the Jewish law. And they were causing a lot of controversy in those churches. And Galatians is what many scholars believe Paul's first letter to the churches that he wrote, and this letter had to do with this issue, that there were people working their way into these churches and, and trying, to, trying to undermine people's faith, saying it's not just faith, it's faith plus works. You have, to, you, you have to go through the rite of circumcision, you have to follow these particular days of festivals and these, these Jewish days of observation that you need to follow. And this letter from Paul to the Galatians is a reminder to us that it's not works, it's faith. 
We're saved alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, that's, that's Christmas, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. We're reminded here that we're sons through Christ because he came at Christmas. Let's pray together and then let's dig into what God has to say to us. Uh, Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Um, God, thank you for this reminder in your word that through Jesus we can become the sons and the the daughters of God. God, thank you that you didn't give up on us. Uh, Thank you that from the beginning of time you had a plan of redemption in place God, I pray this morning uh, for those of us who need so desperately during these difficult times to be reminded that we are rich in Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God. God, I pray that you will remind us of that today. God, I pray for people here this morning that don't know what it is to be a son and daughter of God. They don't know what it is to have their sins forgiven. Um, God, that they will see Jesus for who he is. They'll realize their need of Jesus in their life. And that they too will become sons and daughters of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the gist of this passage is that God sent his son into the world so that we could become the sons of God. That's the, maybe the most condensed version of the Christmas story, the Christmas miracle that you'll ever hear. And because we're sons of God, we can say, you can say, just like I'm here telling you I'm the richest man in town, but I want to point you and your attention to three reasons out of the Scripture, out of this passage in the Bible, why we and why I am the richest man in town. And the first reason that I'm the richest man in town is because of my sovereign Father. You know God's in control, even in 2020, even after an election, before an election, God is in control. And here we see in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. What is, he, what is he talking about when he's talking about the fullness of time had come? We can go back to first, verse 3 and, and see how he's setting this up. He says, in the same way when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But there's a very important conjunction there. It's one of the what I call the big buts of the Bible. But... When the fullness of time had come. This was an important moment in the history of mankind. In order to understand just how important this moment is, you don't have to go with me if you don't want to, but let's go back to the page one, if you will, of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter one, we learn that God created the earth and everything that there is in the earth. He created the stars and the sky and the birds and the the, the fish and the, the plants and the animals, and he created me and he created you. And Genesis one is an account of God's creation. Genesis chapter two, maybe you could say page two of the Bible, zooms in on how God created man. And it's different than the way God created the animals and God created the trees and God created the sky and God created the stars. When God created humans, he got his hands dirty. It says he 
formed us out of the dust of the ground in his image and breathed into us the breath of life. We were created in his image, breathed into by God. We have his breath created in his image. And then God says, this beautiful paradise I've created, this beautiful earth I've created, here are the keys. You manage it. You enjoy it. God creates Adam and Eve, the, 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 the literally the perfect couple. You know, they didn't have to go on Match.com or any of the dating apps to, 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 to get set up. Um, yeah, it's incredible to think that they probably never had a marital fight until after the fall. Yeah, this perfect scenario that God created, it's almost like, for those of you that are car guys like me, the restoration of a vehicle. 68 Camaro, 327 engine, small block. And, and everything's chromed out and single stage paint job that's all buffed out. And someone throws you the keys and says, get in, enjoy it, drive it. God, in a sense, handed us the keys to the earth in page two. And then in page three, we took that Camaro and we wrapped it around a telephone pole. We rebelled against God. Adam and Eve, from the temptation of Satan, rebelled against God. And what, what once was a, a sonship became an enslavement to sin. But in page three, this is how long it took us to mess things up, by the way. This is how long it took us to mess things up. This is the recovery part of the Bible. And in, in chapter three, we see the first promise of Christmas did you know Christmas is in, Galatians, is in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first promise of Christmas. And it's, it's, very, it's, it's a little vague, it's a little broad, but we can see it here that God makes a promise. Interestingly, the first person to hear about Christmas was Satan. It was his death sentence being announced. And in Genesis 3.15, God promises that the seed of a woman will crush the head of Satan. And one of my professors at, at seminary, Dr. Gary Yates, would say it like this. From that point on, the rest of the Bible is a quest for that promised seed. We can see it throughout the Bible. and I wrote down a few bullet points of how we, we, it starts to funnel to only be able to be satisfied by Jesus. Genesis chapter 12, we see that Abraham will be the one whose the, the seed runs through. God prompt makes promises to Abraham, some specific to Israel, but there's a, there's a promise that extends to the whole world when God says, through you and your seed all the earth will be blessed. Genesis chapter 26, we learn that, that that seed will come through Abraham's son Isaac. Genesis chapter 28, we learn that seed will come through Isaac's son Jacob. Genesis 49, we learn that that seed will come through, or, uh, through Jacob's son Judah. Deuteronomy 18, we learn that this, this promised redeemer, this promised seed will be a prophet and a preacher like Moses. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that the seed will be through the line of David the king of Israel at the time. In Isaiah chapter seven, we learn that this seed, this promised redeemer will be born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter nine, we learn that this promised seed will not only be born of a virgin, but he will be God. He will be the wonder of a counselor. He'll be the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. In Isaiah 53, we learn that this seed will be someone who suffers during his time on earth. And then in Galatians chapter three, one page over from our text, verse 16, we learn, that this promised seed from the beginning almost of time was Jesus. It says in verse 16 of Galatians 6, now the promises made to Ab were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is 
Christ. Isn't it incredible that from beginning to end, this entire revelation of God to us is about one subject and one subject only, and it's about the subject of Jesus. And it points to that moment when heaven would touch earth, when God would come to be with us and redeem us. There were many moments throughout the Old Testament where you think, maybe this is the time. When, when, when David was on the throne of Israel and, and, and their, their, their kingdom reached further than maybe it ever had before and, and during the kingship of Solomon, he didn't come. When the Israelites were allowed to come back into the land after they'd been exiled, maybe now's the time, didn't come. When was the fullness of time? When did Jesus come to earth, this promised Messiah? It was during one of the most chaotic times in the history of Judah. We learn a little, we don't, you don't have to turn there. You probably have this verse memorized, many of you. We can learn a little bit of it in Luke chapter 2. It says, it came to pass, there were in those days a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That tells us a little bit about what was going on in Judea, where Jesus was born at the time. A few things that were going on in Judea were that they were an occupied people, They had a history of countries coming in and taking over them, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the the Seleucids to now the Roman Empire had worked their way in, and they were occupied people. Foreigners were running their land, and as you can imagine, resentment was brewing. It wasn't just a governmental oppression. There was a cultural oppression. What was called Hellenism, Greek thought, was invading the Jewish life and invading that area of Palestine. And they were changing languages and they were changing philosophies. And, 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 and people were, if social media were around back then, it would have been lit. It would have been wild. And, and there, was all, there was all this discussion about how people were trying to change their land and change their country. There was maybe the worst thing of all, the worst thing we could think of, a tax increase. Some of us are a little concerned about that always, right? A tax increase. And, and not only were they being invaded by this government, not only was, were they having cultural pressure to change, that invading foreign government was about to raise their taxes. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And to make matters worse, the governor imposed a census Meaning that in order to pay that tax, the, the male leader of that Jewish family had to take his family back to their ancestral homeland, ancestral homeland, in order to be counted. They would count his property, his, his money, the people in his family, his income, and he would be taxed based on that. So for Joseph and Mary, um, who God used to carry Jesus into this world, they had to travel about 100 miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And this census was what many scholars believe, the issue that broke, the, cam- the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, you, you can read some, so, some writings of, of the early... Uh, the early historian Josephus, and, and what, what we learn is that that census was incredibly, uh, incredibly divisive among the Jewish people, uh, because the last time that somebody had tried to take a census was King David, and it didn't turn out very well for him, and the wrath of God came down on him. The only one who was allowed to take a census was God, who did it twice in the book of Numbers, and for them to have this foreign entity come in and try to count them was more than they could bear. So we we see some similarities between the fullness of time when Jesus came and our day. 
some unpopular mandates, the worlding cultural turmoil, talk of riots and revolution and, and revolt. And it was during that time that Jesus was born. And it's a reminder that God was in control. That cultural invasion of Hellenism that the, 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 the Jewish people were fighting against, it laid the foundation for the Greek language that the gospel and the New Testament was written in and could be read throughout the entire world from, from Philippi to Galatia to even down in Alexandria, Egypt. The gospel spread like wildfire because everyone had a common language and can read it. The mandate or the decree that this, this governor imposed was very unpopular, but it took Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem where Jesus was prophesied to be born. Those taxes that nobody likes paying taxes and those Jewish people did not want to pay those taxes, it could be argued that those taxes helped pave the Roman ro Romans' roads that the apostles walked on as they took the gospel to Galatia and to Philippi and into Europe and into Asia and down into Africa. Do you see how even during that time, it seemed so chaotic, God was at work. And if God was at work during the fullness of time when Jesus came, don't you believe that God is still at work today? And even during this time of cultural upheaval, we can still be the richest men and women in town because just as God promised that Jesus would come, he promised that he'd come again. And while we don't have to like and we don't have to agree with everything we see going on around us, we can smile and we can have hope we can have confidence in knowing that behind the scenes, just like we can look back and see how God was at work here, one day we're going to be able to look back and see how God was at work during this moment in our lives. So I'm the richest man in town because of my sovereign father. I'm also the richest man in town because of my sufficient savior. When the fullness of time came, what did God do? He sent forth his son. That, that word son is, is the, the, the Greek word exopostello, which is the root word from where we get apostle, and it means to send someone on a dispatch or to send someone on a mission or with a message, and that is exactly what God did. God sent his son on a mission. The first thing that we should learn about this promised seed about Jesus is that he was God's son. It's very clear here that God sent his son. Jesus was divine. Maybe the person who spent the most time with Jesus on earth was the apostle John. And John said it like this, that Jesus was in the beginning with God, he was with God, and that he was God. The apostle Paul who wrote Galatians also wrote in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself said it like this in a very controversial statement. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was God. God sent his son. So that, that's the big thought, and, and if, if we've got any English teachers in here, you'll appreciate this. Off of that thought, there are two what's called dangling participles. Now that sounds like something you need to see a doctor for, but it's a grammatical term. And th those, what those participles do is they refer back to the act of God sending his son. And the first participle we see is that this son, Jesus, was born of a woman. So not only was Jesus God, Jesus was human. He was God in a bod. You like that? That's how we explain it to the teens. He was God in a bod. 
And what's so important about that? Well, first is that he experienced the same things we did. For the first time ever, ever, God took a drink. For the first time ever, God felt physical and emotional fatigue. For the first time ever, God's human feet touched the ground. For the first time ever, God experienced pain. For the first time ever, God experienced the emotion of sorrow. He was God and he can sympathize with us, but not only can he sympathize with us, he can substitute for us. So Jesus was human and God. He was God and above. The second participle that refers back to God sending his son is this. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And this was the heart of the issue. This is what the the Galatians would have noticed about this statement of Christmas was that Jesus was born under the law. You know, the Jewish people struggled, and we still struggle with this, is that we see God's law, and the law can reveal our sins, but it can't redeem us from our sins, can it? Maybe the most frustrating thing is to know where you're wrong and not be able to do anything about it. You feel powerless. And Jesus was born under the law. He was born into the same situation you could say that we were, in that he was human and that he was born under the law. But unlike us who wrapped the Camaro around the tree, remember that? Unlike us, Jesus aced it. He was born under the law and he fulfilled the law to the T. He fulfilled it beyond what was given to the Jewish people in the Mosaic law. He took it a step beyond the letter of the law, and he fulfilled the spirit of the law. He lived the life that we could never imagine living. He was perfect. So you have Jesus. God sent who? He sent his son. He was God. He was human, born of woman. He was perfect. He was righteous, born under the law. Well, why does that matter? He sent him to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. We're the people who couldn't keep the, we can't keep the law. We, we, we can't live a life that's pleasing to God. Why Jesus? Why couldn't a God sent Clarence, angel second class? Well, first off, Clarence was not that good of an angel from what we understand. But second, Jesus is the only one who can redeem us because of those three things that we talked about. Only God can defeat sin, death, and hell. So God had to send his son. He couldn't send Clarence. Only a human can substitute for another human. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a substitutionary death. He died on behalf of us. He died in place of us. He put our sin to death with his flesh. So it had to be God to defeat sin and death and hell. Had to be a human to substitute for us and had to be born under the law to have the track record and to have the perfection and have the righteousness that could be given to us. If I have sin in my own life, I can't die for your sin. I have to die for my sin. So Jesus is the only sufficient Savior. And a lot of people look for salvation by trying to do the best job they can by working for their salvation. But what we learn here is that Jesus is the only one who can provide a satisfactory sacrifice. I'm saved by faith in Jesus and faith alone. Some people try to work for it. They think if they can just clean their act up enough, if they can just behave enough, if they can you know, quit this bad habit and, 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 and get this relationship right, then maybe they'll be ready to be a Christian. Some people try to work for it. Some people try to work to keep it. Some people say, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my salvation. 
I'm going to afraid that I'm going to commit some sin that God won't or can't forgive. So I'm always looking behind my back, and I'm always double-checking to make sure I cross every I and or cross every T and dot every I. And they're in this constant fear of losing their salvation. And some people try to work to prove it. They've got doubts, and they think, maybe if I just try a little harder, I give a little bit more money, I go on a mission trip, I, you know, I, I donate to, to, to this thing, it's, you know, th- this nonprofit organization on Giving Tuesday, maybe I can, I, I can feel more confident in the fact that I'm saved. But the problem is, you can't work for it, you can't work to keep it, and you can't work to prove it. Your salvation is only in Jesus, who is the sufficient Savior. That's why in Galatians chapter, chapter 3, maybe one page back, or maybe it's on the page that you have open, it says, before faith came, Genesis 3.23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you're no longer under a guardian. For Christ, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Five times, faith. Verse 23, Faith, and again in verse 23, faith. Verse 24, faith. Again in verse 25, faith. Again in verse 26, faith. There's only one way to be saved, and it's through faith in Jesus, because only Jesus, son of God, sent from God, born of woman, born under the law, is sufficient to sacrifice for our sins and to redeem us, to buy us back from the slave market of sins. It cost God a lot more than the $8,000 that George Bailey needed to get out of jail. It cost God the life of his son. So I'm the richest man in town, not only because of my sovereign father, but because of my sufficient savior. There's one more reason why I'm the richest man in town. And this one may be a little bit of a a mouthful, so if you're taking notes, I apologize. I'm the richest man in town because of my spirit-sealed sonship. I think that one of the most beautiful things is stories of adoption. Uh, I know people, I have people in my family who have gone through the process of adoption. It's one of the most beautiful stories you could ever read. Did you know that when you put your faith in Jesus, you were adopted as a son and a daughter of God? And before I get into this section, I do want to give a little disclaimer here. In, 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 in the first century, Sons were the ones who were heirs, and sons were, the, the, the position of son was a designation that was only reserved for, generally, for males. But what we learn here in Galatians chapter, chapter 3, it says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. God created male and female different in complementary roles, but when it comes to our faith in Jesus... There's no difference. We are all sons and daughters of God. We're all heirs of God. So I want to clear that up before we get into this, this, this section here. But isn't the stories that you know of adoption just a beautiful thing? I know it's not always a beautiful thing in the home when they're adjusting to, to new life. But one thing that, that we know is that when, when someone is adopted, they have to have legal documents that prove that they are part of that family. And on that legal document, you know this if you've had to go to the DMV, and I'm sorry I mentioned the DMV at church, but you know this if you've gone to the DMV and you need to provide a birth certificate, it has to have what kind of a seal on it? A raised seal. You know the raised seal on our spiritual adoption is the Holy Spirit that God sent into our hearts. Look at, uh, look, look at verse number six here. It says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The same word, ex apostello, that 
refers to God sending his son has to do with God sending the spirit of his son. So just as God sent Jesus on a mission to redeem us, God sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts on a mission to confirm our sonship. Do you see how, how, how our adoption in Jesus, our position in Christ is not confirmed by what we do. It's confirmed by who lives inside us. He is the seal of our adoption. He is that raised seal. He is the one, it says, who calls out Abba, Father. Not just a legal document. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. The meaning of the son in the first century, what that had to do, it was a legal term, and it meant you were more than a child. You, know, you may have a five-year-old, and that's your son, but in the first century, the word son meant something more. It meant a fully mature child who had the riches and rights of his father conferred upon him. So when we are described as sons and daughters. It's describing how we have the, the legal rights and riches of the sonship of God conferred back on us. That we once enjoyed the relationship and the riches of relationship with God in the garden, how we were, became slaves of sin because of the fall. It has got, Christ has redeemed us and those riches and those rights and that relationship has been conferred on us again. Through Christ. He says, we're no longer slaves, but sons. The son has the nature of the father. Have you ever been told, you look just like your dad when you did that? You look just like your mom when you said that. Anybody ever been told that? I've been told that a time or two. How many of y'all like, took that as a compliment? Well, we won't, we won't ask that. How many took that as a compliment? You know, the second Peter Chapter two says that, or chapter one says that we are partakers in the divine nature, that we no longer are slaves to sin, but the Spirit of God is now in us, and we have the ability through Christ to live a life that's pleasing to God. We have the, the, the nature of the Father in us. The servant doesn't have that. The, the son has a father. The servant has a boss. The son obeys out of love. The servant obeys out of fear. The son is rich. And the servant is poor. You're no longer a slave. You are a son and you are a daughter of God. There's more. It says, if a son, then an heir through God. This isn't one of those emails you get from some guy in Nigeria saying he's got an inheritance that he needs to send to you. And if you can just send him your banking information, uh, he'll, he'll send it right over to you. Uh, th this is... This isn't the story of some rich uncle that you, know, you didn't even know that passed away and wants to give you a couple, you know, a couple hundred bucks. This is a heavenly father who is alive and well who wants to confer upon you some of his riches. What are some of those riches? What are the things that we are, that, that we are an heir to? Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have the riches of his grace, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses. You know that when you become a child of God, God's not sitting at the edge of his seat with a lightning bolt ready to zap you. God's sitting at the edge of his seat ready to forgive you. And during the times we live in, when sometimes we say things we shouldn't, when sometimes we have attitudes in our hearts that just aren't pleasing to God, isn't it encouraging to know that we have a father who is ready to forgive us? We have the riches of his glory. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs in accordance with his riches in glory. We have the riches of his goodness, kindness, forbearance, and patience, 
Romans chapter 2, verse 4. We have the riches of his wisdom, Romans eleven fifty three. We have the riches of answered prayer. One of my favorite promises in James chapter 1, it says that if you ask God, you lack wisdom, he will give it to you liberally, lavishly. And if there's ever been a time where I need wisdom, it's now. And I'd venture to say if there's ever been a time where you need wisdom, it's now. What should our family do for Thanksgiving? What should our family do for Christmas? Should I put my kid in, in, in virtual, in blended, private school, homeschool? The things that keep us up at night, the decisions we don't have a good answer for, we can take those to God and he'll give us wisdom. All of these riches are found in Christ. And as my dad would say, save your fork, there's more. You know that from Thanksgiving, right? You don't put your fork in the sink after dinner. You wait for the pie. You wait for the dessert. And did you know that these riches are just the ones that we're experiencing now, but there's more. 1 Peter chapter 1 says there is an inheritance waiting in heaven for us, an inheritance unsoiled, unspoiled, incorruptible. No one can take it away. What that inheritance is is that we will be with God. We will see him as he is. He will transform our bodies to make us like his. We will finally, hallelujah, lose that old sin nature that is inside us and that Jesus is gonna bring us back to earth to rule and reign with him. We're gonna have another Camaro and this time we won't wrap it around a tree. There are more riches to come. The complete thought is God sent forth his son. That's Christmas. God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because Jesus came at Christmas. I am the richest man in town. It's time we start living like it. How do we live like that? How does that change our lives? What's so, so interesting and incredible about the book of Galatians is that the first four chapters are what we would call theology what we would call doctrine. And Paul lays out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his case for salvation, being saved only through faith in Jesus. The last two chapters, chapters five and six, talk about how we should live in view of our faith in Jesus, how we should live in view of how we are sons and daughters of Christ, how we should live as the richest men and women in town. So if you're note takers, you might like this because I've got six ways that we can live like the richest people in town. And the first one is let's not give an inch to the haters. Let's not give an inch to the haters. You know what I mean by haters, right? 21st century philosopher said it like this, the hater's gonna hate, 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 hate. You know, Paul had some haters. The Galatian Christians, they had some haters. And whether this was their intention or not, what they succeeded in doing was taking the focus of these Galatians off of Christ and onto controversies. There's nothing going on in our world that would cause us to take our focus off of Christ and onto controversies, is there? We should be aware of what's going on in the world. 
but we shouldn't let it take our focus off of Christ. There's really only one thing that's important right now, and it's knowing who we are in Christ and taking that message of the gospel to the world. And the problem that was happening in the Galatian church was they were starting to get the gospel wrong. And it all had to do with who they were listening to and who they allowed to influence them. Paul got a little emotional in Galatians. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Wow, that's strong. That's strong. Who has bewitched you? And I wonder if, if the Apostle Paul were still, were, were still around on earth today, if he might ask the same question of Christians today. Who has distracted us? Who has taken our eyes off of Jesus? The gospel is not for sale for whoever wants it to be the, the, the vehicle to ride with their hobby horse. It's not a prosperity gospel, and it's not a social gospel. It's not a political gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to keep our eyes and our hearts laser-focused on Jesus, especially during these difficult times. If we want to live like we're rich, we have to stop worrying about what the haters are saying. Next way to live like we're rich is let's pool our resources Together. By the way, the first, if, you, if you're taking notes, the, the first point I forgot to mention was out of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. So we don't give an inch. The second one comes out of verse 13 of chapter 5. It says, You were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity from the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the, the second one is let's pool our spiritual riches. Let's pool our riches together to serve one another. So if we're not saved by keeping the law, does that mean we've been given a get out of hell free card and we can just live however we want to until Jesus comes again? Absolutely not. It says don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, use your freedom to be let loose to serve others with your riches. He goes on to say, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. We live in a, in, a, in a world and in a time when we are easily distracted from the riches that we have in Jesus. So this is why we gather. This is why we serve one another so that we can, we can remind each other and we can serve one another, not out of what little bit we have left in the tank after a difficult week, but we serve one another out of the riches that have been given to us by Jesus. And if we, don't, if we don't lean into those riches, if we don't remember how rich we are, we're gonna be like verse 15. We're gonna bite one another and we're gonna devour one another. This year has been hard on people more than ever. We need to be reminded of the riches that we have in Jesus and we need to serve one another through those riches. Number three, let's stop climbing the ladder and start walking by the Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter five, it says, I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Lest, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The gospel isn't opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning. We should be walking 
through the Spirit. Number four, let's strengthen the weak and wounded among us. Chapter six, verse one, it says, brothers, if any of you is caught in a transgression, those of you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There are a lot of weak and wounded among us. There are a lot of people who aren't able to come out because of the, the virus and older people who have been effectively shut in. We should be going to them. We should be encouraging them, reminding them how rich they are in Christ. Number five, let's invest our resources in what really matters. Chapter six, verse eight, it says, the one who sows to his own flesh will from his own flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. We've been blessed. We don't need to worry about, uh, about the things of the earth to the degree that they consume our lives. And the final thing is let us not grow weary Verse 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So the final question I want to ask you this morning is, are you working or are you believing? Are you working for your salvation, working to keep your salvation, or working to prove your salvation? Or are you living from your salvation? Are you living like the richest man in town?